0: I wonder, have you ever been in a situation or witnessed a circumstance, something like this? Your telephone buzzes or it rings. You pick it up and you look at it, and the name that is displayed to you is someone that you don't really want to talk to. You have had some kind of difficulty with this person, maybe a dispute. Or maybe every time that you talk to that man or that woman, he or she is offensive or irritating. And what do you feel like when you see that name and you know that you have to answer the phone call when it comes into you? How do you feel? And when you do answer it, how does the conversation go? What happens? Well, maybe it's a family member with whom you disagree over something, like family finances, Perhaps it's a neighbor who has initiated a property dispute with you, or who refuses to remove all of the junk in his yard, or who allows his dogs to terrify the neighborhood. Watching a Christmas story recently, this is like the Bumpus family next door. What if it's a contractor who did shoddy work on your house? It could be any of these, or perhaps others. There could be many scenarios. But seldom, when we answer the phone, do these conversations go well. Oftentimes they start out heated and they only get hotter. And how do they end? They end with anger and bitterness and oftentimes sinful recriminations, hard and harsh words that are spoken back and forth. And I ask the question, is that a familiar scene? Because sadly, probably for most of us, we can remember when we experienced or when we witnessed just this kind of thing. And I'm sure you agree with me, it's not a very good memory to remember, is it? Something we would rather forget. Well, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is in some sense like one of these conversations, but we're only able to listen to one side, as if we were sitting in the room while someone else endures uh, discussion like this on the telephone. But it really is just like it. Think about it. In this epistle, Paul must address deep problems in the Corinthian church. He must defend his own ministry. He must describe the depth of the multiple troubles that he has endured. He calls the Corinthian church to repentance. He pleads for reconciliation and much more. The Corinthians had criticized him. They'd been overzealous in their their practice of church discipline. They had viewed the apostle as secondary and perhaps even as an object of scorn because of his difficulties. They were proud, miserly, self-centered, willing to accept other pseudo-apostles over Paul. And this epistle is full of these problems. You see, it really reads very much like one of these difficult conversations, at least from one side. And yet, it closes with the fullest and most extensive word of blessing that is found in all of Paul's letters. Murray Harris, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, actually ends the commentary with these words. He says this, It is a singular paradox that a letter so full of indignation, remonstrance, and gyrating emotions should conclude with the most elevated Trinitarian affirmation in the New Testament, couched in the form of a benediction addressed to all of the members of a factious church. Dr. Harris is exactly right. While our conversations or our experiences of difficult conversations often end in hard feelings or shame or further conflict, Paul concludes his hard letter to this church with words of blessing, words of prayer, words of hope. They are directed to the Corinthians based upon his Trinitarian doctrine and applied to all of the believers without exception. Here is genuine Christian love presented to us in a delightful form. In these final words of 2 Corinthians, we have a beautiful benediction. Now I wonder, do you know what a benediction is? We sometimes in our minds get benedictions and doxologies confused with one another. Many churches conclude their services with a benediction. And it's a word that we use, but perhaps sometimes we don't always understand what it means. A benediction simply is a, an anglicized or an English version of a Latin term that means a word of blessing. Bena is blessing, diction, word, a word of blessing. A blessing, And it's not the same as a doxology, though it's easy to confuse them. Let me try to differentiate them for you. A doxology is a brief expression of praise that we offer up to God. Just maybe a page or two back in your Bibles, in 2 Corinthians 11.31, Paul gives us an example of a doxology where he says, "...the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is blessed forever." And he knows that I'm not lying. He speaks a word of blessing upon God. That's an example of a doxology. A doxology is a word of praise that we speak to God. So it originates with us, with God as its object. We are seeking that he would hear us, and we praise him in a word of doxology. But a benediction is exactly the opposite. A benediction is a word of blessing that is spoken to us, not by us, but to us. It's God, or one of the messengers of God, speaking to us a word of blessing. It comes to us from God's representatives and it expresses to us a desire for His bounty to come upon us. And the reason that churches include benedictions in their worship services is so that the last word that we hear before we go out the door is a word of blessing from the Lord to all of his people. That's what Paul does here in this epistle, and that's what we want to do. In fact, if you read all of Paul's letters, you find something very interesting. He frequently employs benedictions, and all of his epistles both begin and end with them. In his greetings, we heard one of them just a few moments ago, he'll say something like this, and it's a benediction. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a benediction at the beginning of his epistles. And oftentimes in his farewell, he likewise expresses a blessing to his recipients. Now, Paul doesn't do this as a matter of custom. It's not the way that you and I greet someone, hey, how you doing? I'm fine when you really don't even think about the fact that you just ask how someone is, and when you answer, you don't really tell the truth. You're not lying, you're just saying something that's familiar. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul wants God's people to know the things that he expresses in these benedictions, and he wants them to grow in the grace of God that is expressed in these words. You see, Paul's desire is for Christians to live with a deep understanding of the spiritual realities which are at the root of their lives. Christians must know God, not just know about him, but really and truly comprehend, experience his grace, and walk through life with an absolute dependence upon the God of heaven and earth. And so he places these benedictions at the entry and at the exit of all of his epistles. And so this this afternoon... I want you to study with me verse 14, and notice Paul's beautiful benediction here in this place. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These are very familiar words, and these final words that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians pick up themes that have been present throughout the letter. Grace to overcome, love for one another fellowship by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul here is summarizing much of what he's already spoken, what he's already taught the Corinthians in this epistle. And it's really interesting because there's a very real sense in which this benediction looks back and presents us with ideas that are drawn from the epistle, but it's not a backwards-looking blessing, It actually is a blessing that points the Corinthians and us, by the way. It points us forward. The reasons that they needed to hear these things are obvious, if we've read the entire epistle and seen the difficulty, the trouble that exists in the church. But at this moment, as they're hearing this epistle being read, Paul doesn't want them to dwell on the past and dwell on their sins, but rather he wants them to seek the remedy and to know its blessed fruits, grace and love and fellowship. The last word that they would hear when they were gathered together, as the letter was being read to them, probably by one of their elders, is a word of blessing. Yes, they have a great deal of repenting that they must do, but even their repenting must be done in the proper context, in the context of the grace of, and the love and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And this explains that context. This helps the Corinthians forward. It's a remedy for them in the midst of their trouble. Now let's try to take it apart a little bit and notice what Paul teaches us in this benediction. The first thing that we notice is that this is a Trinitarian benediction. The Son, the Father, and the Spirit are all present You know, the authors of the New Testament were clearly Trinitarians. They understood the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, maybe they didn't use that term, because the term doesn't appear in the history of the church until about 100 years after Paul. But still, the doctrine that is taught by the term was clearly understood by them. Think about this. Here we have a Jewish man a man who was trained in the best seminary of Judaism in Jerusalem by a man named Gamaliel, a man who learned from his youth that there is only one God, we have this person who was committed to that fundamental principle of Judaism in a prayer offering up words from three persons. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He places these three persons on equal footing. We could look through Paul's epistles and notice that in many, many places, he speaks about the one true God. He's not afraid to confess that there is one God. But this one who confesses that there is one God, here recognizes that, that, that this one God is three persons. The Son, the Father, and the Spirit, who work together to bring about salvation for his people. I'm sure you'll agree with me, that the doctrine of the Trinity is profound and it is certainly beyond our comprehension. We confess it, but we don't understand it. One of the fathers of the early church, Gregory Nazianzus, put it beautifully. Listen to how he expressed his faith in the Trinity in a sermon that he preached on holy baptism. It was interesting. It's interesting that it was preached in the first Sunday of the year in January. He says this, no sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. And we can read the quotation again. Now he's thinking about the one, and he's illumined by the splendor of the three, and as he thinks about the three, he's brought back to the one, which causes him to think about the three, which causes him to think about the one one. And he's overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the God who is one and the God who is three. The Holy Trinity, blessed forever in majesty and glory, works as one to bring us to eternal life. You know, our confession of faith speaks about this at the end of chapter 2. Because it tells us that the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to know, to experience, to learn in their lives. Communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. And the foundation of that is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Now we need to, we need to be careful as we read this verse. Because Paul here is not teaching us that these are the works of the, the persons of the Trinity acting individually. That would contradict many other verses that speak of things such as, not the grace of Christ, but the grace of the Lord, and the love of Christ, not the love of God. But rather here, he's focusing our attention on a wonderful truth. Notice your Bibles. Notice what he says. It is only by the grace of Christ that the Corinthians may know the love of God and the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that the persons of the Trinity are not in the traditional order that we recognize. When we speak about the Trinity, or when we sing about the Trinity, we speak of Father, Son, and Spirit, don't we? But here Paul speaks of Son, and Father, and Spirit. And the reason that he does that is that we may only know the love of God and the blessings of fellowship in the Holy Spirit because of the grace of God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have written it differently, and sometimes other scriptures emphasize, for example, the love of God first. We love him because he first loved us. But here he is seeking to help the Corinthians out of the troubles that were plaguing their churches. He is very concerned for them, and if they are to know the love of God and to remedy the divisions that are present in their churches... That love must come first by experiencing, by knowing, by learning about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so his benediction, which is a prayer in this case, follows a very specific pattern. Let's think through it. We see that it's Trinitarian, that all of the persons in the Trinity are working together for the good of the Corinthian church and all Christians. But now let's think individually about what he says. He begins by speaking of the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul here uses his full name and title. That's of real significance. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, helps us to understand this. He points out that there are three things that are present in these words, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord speaks to his divine nature. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Everything that may be said about God may be said about this one. He is really and truly God. The name Jesus speaks to his human nature. We've just been through the season in which we rejoice and remember the incarnation of of the second person of the Holy Trinity, who took upon himself all of our human nature. Every true aspect of what it means to be a human, he added to himself. He took it to himself. So when Paul says, the Lord Jesus, he means God who becomes man, and he is Christ. Christ speaks to his office. He is the long-promised Messiah. In one person, he is God, he is man, He is the one who through the prophets was promised to come and be the Messiah, the deliverer for Israel. Now, it's curious, isn't it? Not curious in a strange way, but curious in an interesting way to say that not only do we have a Trinitarian statement, but we have from Paul's pen a high Christological statement as well. In these three simple words, we have the doctrine of the Nicene Creed. Two natures joined together in one person to accomplish the redemption of God's elect forever to the glory of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is that our Savior, in the fullness of his identity, brings grace to us. He loves his church, and he lavishes grace upon his church. Grace unmerited favor love that has no limits flowing from Christ the Savior to his needy people grace is not a physical commodity but grace is an essential spiritual value grace that has been purchased at the cost of his own life at the cost of his incarnation at the cost of his obedience to his father at the cost of his death upon the cross and his burial in a tomb and his resurrection from the dead on the first day of the week, and his ascension into heaven. Grace that comes to us because of who he is and because of what he has done. Think with me for a moment. Imagine with me the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this epistle, down on his knees, praying to God and asking for copious measures of grace to come upon the Corinthians. the God-man in heaven, the inexhaustible source of grace. Paul knows that's what they must have. It must be present in their lives to begin to overcome the difficulties. The eternal one who humbled himself and became man to redeem us. The blessing is very simple. But it is amazing when you think about it. Because grace is to the life of the believer what water is to the soil. I lived for 20 years in Southern California in a semi-arid environment without rain. And sometimes our rain would be six inches in a year, eight inches in a year. We were perpetually in a state of drought. If we didn't have irrigation and watering, no one would have a lawn. The golf courses would all be dirt. There'd be nothing but dirt. You need water for the soil. Grace is like that for our hearts. Without it, there is no growth, but only barrenness and emptiness. The Corinthians need grace, and we need grace. Paul knows that for them, with all of their troubles, he must seek the blessing of grace, showers of life-giving grace, because grace is the doorway to the future for the Corinthians. It is the blessing of bringing forth good fruit. And it comes to them from the Savior who gave his life for them, the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. When the New Testament writers use the word God, they most commonly, though not always, but most commonly they use the word God simply to refer to, to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Paul simply tells us that the grace which comes from Christ helps us to know the love of God. In fact, I'm reminded right here when I think about this of the words of our Lord Jesus in the upper room as he's about to go to the cross and he's preparing his disciples for the events that they will soon witness. Remember, you all know the words that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What's the rest of it? No one comes to the Father but by me. Think about the order here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. No one can come to know the love of God unless they come by way of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because Paul here is not talking about our love for God. He's not talking about that weak and changing love that you and I may or may not have but rather he is turning the attention of the Corinthians to the enormous love that God the Father has for us. Grace alone allow, allows us to know something of the fullness of the depth of the love that God has for the Corinthians and for us. He is not aloof. He's not far away. He is rather overflowing in love. He is the one who has given to us Christ so that Christ might give to us grace. You know, here's a moment of frustration for every preacher. How do you describe the love of God? How do you put into words the most beautiful, the most wonderful? How do we describe it? It's beyond parallel. It's above comparison. There's nothing that we could say that would even begin to approach the wonderful nature of the love of God. Paul says that it surpasses our knowledge. He tries to express it in Ephesians chapter 3 in spatial terms. He tells the Ephesians that he wants them to know the length and the width and the breadth and the depth, the height of the love of God. How high is it? How deep is it? How wide is it? How long is it? It expands eternally, and there is no end to the love of God. Here in 2 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 14, this simple phrase points us to that amazing reality that John says, God, you can finish it, God is love. The love of God is eternal. The love of God is unchangeable. The love of God is omnipotent. The love of God is omnipresent. God is love. And his love, which is demonstrated to us by Christ's grace, is not just a concept out there. Paul wants the Corinthians to know it. He wants the Corinthians to bathe in the love of God, the love that God has for them. And they will then be transformed by this love that initiates with the Father in heaven. The Scripture asserts that we are to delight in God's love. Jesus prays to the Father for us because the Father loves us. The Holy Spirit sheds the love of the Father into our hearts. The New Testament is full of this doctrine. In a couple of words here, Paul is pointing us to something that is absolutely full everywhere in the Scriptures. It's a marvelous truth, it's an enormous blessing. And I might ask, what better benediction? For the Corinthians might be offered then that all of them would know something of the love of God revealed to them in Jesus Christ to know this and to be changed by it. But that's not the end. Paul goes on. He's not finished. He's briefly talked about the love, I'm sorry, the grace of Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God but he must also speak of the work of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship or the communion of the Holy Spirit. Here is the third person of the Holy Trinity, the sometimes neglected person, who is an essential part of this wonderful benediction. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to understand what Paul is saying here. Because it's easy to misread what is written before us. We might read it to say something like this. The fellowship that we have with one another because of the Holy Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship that we have with one another because of the Holy Spirit. But if we read it like that, we would actually miss Paul's point because that's not what he's saying. Think about this with me just for a moment. In the first and the second of these three parts of this benediction, Paul's desire is that the Corinthians would know blessings that come down from heaven, grace from the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God. It seems probable that the same type of pattern is followed through in the third, and the idea that is present here, the koinonia, the blessing, the fellowship, the communion of the Holy Spirit, does not have reference to what he does among us, but rather it is the blessings, the fullness of the spiritual blessings that are lavished upon us by the Spirit of God, the fruit of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and everything else that the Spirit does in making us Christ-like and preparing us to live in the heavenly world of love in the presence of the glorious triune God. Think about how often the New Testament emphasizes this. The Spirit reminds us of the words of Christ. He glorifies the Son of God. He sheds the Father's love into our hearts. He bears witness with us that we are God's children. He seals us, assuring us of eternal life. He's the down payment of a heavenly world. He anoints us so that we are like priests before God when we come to worship. He is the spirit of adoption. That's what the fellowship of the spirit is. It's knowing all of these divine blessings that are given to us by the grace of Christ in the love of God as the spirit is poured out on us in all of his fullness and all of his blessing. This is the communion of the Holy Spirit. To know these things ever more fully. And if the Corinthians know these things, of course the problems that are present in their church will go away. Because their love for one another will increase. Their kindness, their gentleness, their long-suffering, all of the fruit of the Spirit will be evident. Their trees will be full with low-lying fruit, the good fruit that belongs by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful blessing. Paul wishes upon the Corinthian church. It's a great blessing. And who is able to put a quantity to it? If grace comes to us in overflowing measure and love comes to us in overflowing measure, so does Paul wish that the fruit, the fellowship of the Spirit, come upon us in overflowing measure. It's wonderful, isn't it? But that's not all. It's not done yet. There's even more here. We must not miss the final phrase of this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We must not miss this last little phrase. There are two things to notice about it. First and more briefly, grace, love, and communion are not philosophical concepts. They have a source, the divine trinity, and they have a destination, the lives of God's people in his church. They come from God to women and to men like you and like me. God's purpose is that they will be known by us. They will be experienced by us. That they will influence the life of the church of Jesus Christ. But the second thing I want you to notice here is that Paul includes the entire church in this benediction. These are the people who had rejected him. These are the people who had troubled him. They had followed pseudo-apostles. They had mocked Paul. They had ridiculed and minimized him. And yet he pronounces these words upon all of them. You know, sometimes I try to imagine Paul, when he's writing this epistle, he had spent a lot of time in Corinth. He knew these people. He knew their faces. He knew their names. He probably could remember their voices. He may have been in many of their homes. These are are not just abstract people. If I tell you that I was a pastor for 20 years in Southern California, and it was a wonderful church to be in, you thank God with me, but you don't know those people, do you? But I do. I can remember them and their faces and their names and their voices. Paul knew these people. And perhaps some of them had stood before him and to his face had resisted him. Paul didn't have an iPhone. But if he did and their name came up on it, this is what he would have thought. Not, oh no. He would have thought, this man, this woman needs the grace of Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Paul excludes no one in the church from his desire to to know these things. Because these words were intended for the church. And of course, because they were intended for the Corinthian church, they are intended for us as well. They are intended for us to seek for others, even those who have wounded us. You see, think about it like this. This benediction, these words that Paul speaks, are not the rewards for good behavior. Paul doesn't pick out his friends, his supporters, and say, Lord, send these blessings upon these people who are really kind to me and really good, but I'm not so concerned about the others. No, he's thinking about the whole bunch. Friends and troublemakers. People who love him and people who irritate him. He's thinking about all of them. No one who names Christ's name should be excluded. These are words of life and health and growth that are intended for all. It may be that those who are the irritants need them even more than the people who are Paul's supporters. And he prays that they might come to them. They're really wonderful words. These are not the results of good works, grace and love and fellowship. They don't come to the Corinthians because they've been good boys and girls. They go before anything that we do, and they serve as the only basis upon which our obedience may flow. You know, when you read the book of 2 Corinthians, it reads like one of these difficult conversations that people have on the telephone. But the ending sure is good, because it's very different from the way that our conversations generally end. Now, you know, I can't come to you and preach this text and tell you that there are three ways, that you, th- three ways to put these things into practice in your life. I can't tell you to do five things so that you will receive these gifts of grace because they are gifts of grace. Without the presence and the power of the triune God, we are nothing and we can do nothing. Even our, <coughs> pardon me, even our duties must be based in his being and in his acts, in who God is, because the foundation of our communion and comfortable dependence upon him rests upon the doctrine of the Trinity, the one God who is three persons, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God and man together in one, who becomes Messiah, who is our Messiah, the Holy Spirit who has been shed abroad in our hearts so that we might know God. You know, we've only glanced at the surface of this deep reservoir of comfort and strength. A whole series of sermons could be preached on each one of the parts of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. We've spoken a little bit about knowing the splendor of our Trinitarian God, receiving His grace, being enfolded in His love, and knowing communion with Him and with one another, far more than we can even comprehend fully. But it's a gift, and it's a gift that we may know now as a church. So brothers and sisters, when you leave, let me urge this to you. Go from this place, blessed by the Lord, remembering these words, that the God of heaven and earth is a God full of grace in Christ, and overflowing love in the Father, and fellowship with in eternal blessings in the Holy Spirit. Meditate on this lesson and look to him for your life so that he will see these things growing in greater and greater quantity, reality in your midst. So go in peace. And may the Lord's benediction be on all of you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we know that we deserve nothing from You. And yet, You grant to us blessings that are far beyond anything this world can offer us. We thank You for Your grace that has rescued us from the misery of our sins. And Your love that sent Christ to open the way. And the fellowship of Your Spirit which makes us to be like Christ. And we would ask you to work these things more and more in our own lives so that grace and love and fellowship might grow. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.